This is Pet Life Radio. Let's talk pets. Who adores their fur baby? Whose pup sleeps with them? I think a lot of us can say yes to those questions, but it wasn't always like that for dogs or cats. In the last 20 years alone, dogs and cats have gone from street animals to our children. My guest today is Mark Cushing, author of Pet Nation, The Love Affair That Changed America. Mark is going to guide us through what happened, how it happened, where it happened, and why. And what you'll learn may surprise you. It did me. I'm Judy Miller-Young, and you're listening to Bark and Swagger on Pet Life Radio. We'll take a short break from our sponsor, so grab that favorite beverage, get comfortable, and we'll be right back. It's designerpetsweaters.com. Hand-knitted designer sweaters for your precious pup or cool cat. Beautiful couture patterns for your pets, including custom-knitted formal wear, casual wear, yachting, and even sports-themed. Many designer pet sweaters include feathered tammy hats, top hats, and a lot of sparkle. Each sweater includes leg loops, front paw sleeves, and leash opening. Visit designerpetsweaters.com to order your four-legged fashions today. Your pets will stay warm for the winter and be runway ready. Large or small, we fit them all. Designerpetsweaters.com Let's Talk Pets on PetLifeRadio.com. Welcome back. If you've just joined, you're listening to Bark and Swagger on Pet Life Radio. I'm Jody Miller-Young. We're talking today with Mark Cushing, founding partner and CEO of the Animal Policy Group and author of Pet Nation, The Love Affair That Changed America. Hey, Mark. Hey, Jody. Thanks for having me on the show. My pleasure. Thanks for coming on. Now, this is a really interesting book. You call this sort of seismic shift in the way we as a society view dogs and cats and have sort of integrated them into our lives. You call it Pet Nation, and it's very apropos. And you have an insider's view as head of the Animal Policy Group. So tell us how this transformation happened. It was interesting. It uh you know, dogs and cats didn't change. Let's get that straight with all your listeners. Uh, dogs chase balls, cats chase strings. Uh, people changed. And I'm a baby boomer. So I remember when pets were okay. accessories. They lived outside. You enjoyed your pets. Some people had a close, close relationship, but but not everyone. And then they came inside. And they came inside in the, in the childhood of many baby boomers. And at the same time that TV became fascinated with real pets like Lassie, the greatest dog in the history of the world, and Ren Ten Ten and cartoon characters like Scooby-Doo and so forth. And we began to see pets as these fun, engaging, interesting, heroic, loyal things. And the experience of bringing them inside, Jody, caused us to, to be engaged with them more. And at that point, I'll snap my fingers, the human-animal bond kicked in. And that's the secret to really what happened, namely that it's a proven medical scientific fact that engagement with pets increases our oxytocin, which is the part of our brain that stimulates happiness, joy, relaxation, and it decreases our cortisol level, which is a source of stress and tension and anxiety. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And 
people began to experience just how much fun pets were. And suddenly they didn't just take them into their kitchen. They brought them all the way into the bedroom where 75% of all pets sleep. And this was all happening at a time when the pet population in the country, which is now, everybody get ready for this figure, we're close to 200 million pet cats and dogs in the United States. I and that number broken. And the numbers, the change in 25 years, Jody, raced around and just lapped human population growth. So we were surging in the number of pets and they came inside and we had this experience. And then to almost reverse it from inside to out or outside to in, dog owners, metaphorically, I say, but dog owners basically walked out the front door and took their dogs everywhere to work, to stores, to trains, to planes, to churches, to essentially no dogs allowed or no pets allowed signs, you know, were effectively just taken down across America and with only a handful of places left. So people engaged pets everywhere and constantly in a way they never had. And I know you're from Long Island and have lived in the city. And my brothers lived near Gramercy Park in Manhattan for about 30 years, 40 years. And, you know, Manhattan streets probably per capita have more dogs walking them at any given time than any place in America. Absolutely. And then not to mention, yeah, you had Lassie, you had Rin Tin Tin, but then came Jif the Palm. Oh, oh. Jif the Palm. I mean, could we, all, <laughs> could we all have his following? I mean, Exactly. And to explain to people who don't yeah. follow the, the dog stars of Instagram, Jif the Palm is one of the early ones, has millions of, of followers, and there are a ton of others now. Yeah. And so what happened was this combination of the individual relationships changing while the physical presence dramatically transformed itself. And America had to sort of make room for pets. And it's almost like we created a new species, but we really didn't. Cats and dogs, as I said, were really the same as they've been for thousands of years. But it, it had the effect of just flipping everything on its head. Mm. And, and it's, uh, and, and, it's what I call the great leveler. And, and I, I'll stick with Manhattan. If you go, and there's a great dog park right across from Italy, I think on 20th. Madison Square Park. That was our yeah, dog park. We lived there in There you Chelsea. go. There you go. Well, you know that park. Very, and you walk, into that, you walk into that park and the following occurs. Two people with the dog will meet. They will not say, where do you live? How much money do you make? What's what your do you job? Do? Right. What do you drive? You know, who's your favorite sports team, you know, nobody would admit it in New York anymore, but uh, sorry. But anyway, uh, they don't talk about that. They say, what's her name? What kind of breed is she? Oh, what's she like to do? What do you feed her? I mean, in 25 minutes, they're friends and, and, yeah. and they're strangers that never would have talked. And so the icing on the cake became research that occurred. And I was exposed to it uh, through, through the researchers in Western Australia in Perth, which is kind of like San Diego on the Indian Ocean in Western Australia. Mm -hmm. And they wanted to study what makes communities work, what makes communities safer, what makes people feel more secure, trust each other. What's the factor? What's the glue? And the term academicians use is uh, social capital. It's a good word, good phrase. And they went in blind to study the factors. You can think of things, sports, church, family, school, music, you know, whatever. And guess what won? Pets. Yeah. And everybody saw that research, myself included. And I, I was knocked over. I remember sitting in a conference room in Portland, Oregon, near where I grew up and where I was working at the time. And I was blown away. And then it just hit me. Okay, wait a second. 
we're just not talking about fun things. You know, aren't, isn't my dog cute? Isn't my cat fun? No, that's not what we're talking about. We're talking about a social cultural force that is the primary force in making people feel comfortable, safe, secure in the neighborhood. So we tested it in San Diego, same test in Portland, same test in Nashville. And even in the Bible Belt in Nashville, pets were number one, same outcome. So the power of this movement of pets inside, surge in pet population, pushing dogs everywhere, suddenly we had a new kind of social compact in the U.S., and that's what I call Pet Nation. It's a culture not devoted to pets. It's just a culture that has brought pets into their lives. And we force, frankly, everybody who doesn't have a pet to deal with pets. And yes, they, I know. I know. But I think there's also another component here, too, which you talked about in your book. And that is that Pet Nation spawned this enormous boon in business that oh, continues to grow and grow. So unpack the economics for us. You laugh, Jody. You know, my book came out September 8th. And I had, you know, two straight weeks sort of nonstop interviews around the country, virtually, of course. And the greatest demand for interviews were national business and finance shows, Bloomberg, you know, Yahoo Finance, because everybody's woken up to the fact that the pet economy, which is now about a hundred billion dollar a year economy, is maybe the best place to place your money because there's a simple fact. And uh, there's no amount of money I wouldn't bet on this fact. People are not taking their dogs and cats back to the shelter or to wherever they got them. That's Pets, right. there's no recession that will cause people to say, well, you know what? We've enjoyed Sparky, but buy Sparky. Good luck. You'll enjoy the forest. It's not going to happen. No. And so in millennials, you know, the children in many cases of, of baby boomers, I have four millennial kids and one Gen Z. Millennials and Gen Z, get ready for this. Jody, they own 62% of all pets in this country. And wow. you know what? They don't have one dog, they have two. They don't have one dog and a cat, they have two cats. And they want the same level of healthcare that they get, they'll pay for it. They want nutrition at the level they would eat it. Not that they want to eat their pet's food, but they want you know high performing nutrition. They want toys, they want training, they want behavioral assistance. And it's not, you know, I don't call it their new child because that's an insult to pets. They have it better than kids. <laughs> you know why? Because pets don't become teenagers. All right, pets. Right. So, you know, that you just, that's hands down. Both makes pets. <laughs> yeah. Exactly. And, you know, probably many people still there. Um, but the, so, the, so the interesting factor was people discovered this. And then the next generation came out of colleges or when they entered the workforce, they got pets pretty quickly and often not just one. And I don't think they were testing whether they wanted to have a baby. Some people have that theory. I don't, I don't buy that theory. I think they just got pets and then decided maybe or maybe not to have children. Interestingly, that's a topic that I take the Pope on in the book because he said some just crazy. Yes, I know. Yeah, you know, and my mother's up in heaven who had a picture of Pope Francis cover on Time Magazine on her coffee table for the last four years of her life. And she's up there right this second just saying, Mark, don't bring the Pope up. Don't. Don't bring him up because well, now that you have Mark <laughs> share with our audience what he said. Well, it, it's so funny. Let, let's remind, you know, Catholics know this, uh, but not everybody's Catholic. When you're named Pope, you get to choose your name. You know, my name is Mark Cushing, but when you become Pope, I'm not Pope Mark. I'm not a candidate for that ever to happen anyway, but he chose Francis of Assisi. Well, most people, Catholics or otherwise, know that Francis of Assisi is the patron saint of animals. And it's, it's kind of like he didn't do his homework because- <laughs> He gave an interview. He's from Argentina, where they you know, they treat parrots better than they do dogs. You know, and, and I don't know if that's part of his thinking. But in any event, 
he was interviewed by an Argentinian journalist in 2015. And he basically went after pet ownership as one of the kind of the evils, the problems in the world's culture. And he was really thinking about Europe and, and America and that people spend too much time and they spend too much money. But more than that, he said, the emotion you invest in your pet is emotion you don't have available then to help your neighbor and be a friend and care for people in your life. What, what we call a zero thumb sum theory. Frankly, you know this better than I do because you do pets all day long uh, as well on your show. Pets make people better. Yeah. They don't just make them happier. There are, there are curmudgeons. There are people you wouldn't want to spend a minute with that once they get a puppy or a kitten, you see a whole new side of them. And his theory is absurd. And then he, he warns people, God forbid you don't have a child and you, you reach the end of your life thinking a pet's going to take care of you or help you through the ending years. Very depressing there. And he, and he basically says to people, Pets are going to keep you from having children. And I think the Pope enjoys red wine, being from Argentina, probably a good Malbec. I don't know if he just had too many that day. Um, but <laughs> and it's surprising, on. too, because he's always seemed like a more progressive Pope. Yeah. So it, it, You got yeah. it. And, he, and then, by the way, he repeated it in two sermons. I did my homework here, you know, knowing that my mother was, you know, listening smoke coming out of her ears. And, uh, <laughs> but anyway, so it's, uh, it's interesting. And, but that viewpoint is shrinking by the day around the country and yeah. people have resigned I mean, and given up, but, but, uh, yeah, I, I want to just sort of take this back to our listeners for a second in terms of the boon in business, because I know there are people listening who have pet businesses or, maybe thinking about starting a pet business. Sure. And obviously, like with anything else, you've got to do your homework. But, you know, this there couldn't be a better time, not only because there's such a boon in, in you know, in businesses relating to pets, but because it's also matched with an incredible boon in online shopping. And, you know, you can't like open any magazine or online, you know, read and not uh, see a store about how this holiday season, the stores are empty, but online shopping is at an all-time high and has been growing in leaps and bounds and even easier, you know, barrier to entry. So You've got it. something jo to think about. Jody, it's, it's, and I will tell you, probably won't surprise you, but uh, I'm working on a pet fashion uh, new business. Oh my God, we should I, talk I, after the interview. I've been there. Go. <laughs> but, but, but it's interesting. It is the best industry to be engaged in for two reasons. There's so much joy and happiness yes. and delight surrounding pets. And you hear this from veterinarians, from pet nurses, from people that work at, at retail stores, wherever they touch the pet world. It's just a fun business to be in. I grew up in Port or near Portland and in the early days of Nike, there was just so much energy around that that business, right? Because they were putting cool shoes on, people getting in shape and running for metal. Culture. Yeah. And the culture of it. Well, pets, that's pet right now. Yeah. And the other thing is millennials have money and they and they want to spend on their pets. They like the idea. My pappy on puppy, Louie, who's who's one today, by the way. You're I'm celebrating his birthday on your show. Oh, happy birthday, Louie. There you go. Well, and he's named for Louis Vuitton. So Louie, if we get a package that he thinks has a new shirt or t-shirt or sweater for him, and when my wife opens it, no kidding, he gets up on his hind legs and he bows his head so he can start to put his neck. Through the hole. No, no kidding. I mean, I, when I figured out he was doing it, and last night I, I was taking a phone call outside, and my wife came home from a meeting and had Louie with her, and he hops out, 
and he and you're in South Florida. He's in a light blue, an aqua blue Cubano shirt, right? You know, with the embroidery, like yes. two guys smoking a cigar, playing dominoes would have on the South Beach. It cracked me up. I mean, he loves to wear cool things. You have got to send us pictures of- No, no, no. They're coming. <laughs> In fact, what we're doing is we're just posting a lot of social media. I'll make sure you see on Kempton Hotels, which are the most pet-friendly hotels in yes. the country. And I just we just did a staycation overnight there, and we took a photographer- and it's Louie checking in and Louie, you know, you know, schmoozing with the girls in the pool and, and, and he's got about four outfits. So you, you'll like what you see. I'll, I'll make sure you oh, see. Oh, I can't wait to see it. And I think we'll want to share with everybody. I think everybody wants to see Louie in his cool outfits. There we're you go. Big, we're all big pet fashion lovers here. I know that. Yeah. You mentioned the human animal bond and we know that's gained, that term has gained a lot of traction over the past couple of years. I remember when Habri, for those unfamiliar, the Human Animal Bond Research Institute was formed. Tell us where this term came from and give us a yeah. behind the scenes view. I'll do that. About that's how true. the bond has impacted and is reflected in Pet Nation beyond what you've talked about, because there's a lot, you go deeper in the book. Yeah. I'm happy to do that. And that's a great question. And I, I'm privileged to count Habri as a client. So I'm, I'm very close to Perfect. what they do. So back in the 60s and 70s, again, if you think about a childhood of boomers, there began to be a group of academicians, psychologists in particular, and veterinarians who studied and, and came to believe that there was something going on in the interaction between people and animals, either just everyday life or autistic kids, isolated seniors sexually abused teenage girls and, and, and the like, who, and that something positive was happening. And the dean at Washington State named Leo Bustad, B-U-S-T-A-D, he was really the pioneer. And the phrase was created, human-animal bond. And a lot of people wonder what that means, you know, and, and people scoffed at it. And the scientists said, that's not science. It's kind of like your grandmother's flu remedy. Sure, p- pets are fun. They, you're in a good mood when you're with a pet. Okay, what's your point? And there was skepticism, 60s, 70s, 80s, 90s. Researchers increasingly took on projects, did peer-reviewed, which means reviewed by fellow scientists to go into a scientific journal, not going into Time Magazine or the front page of the New York Post. But now there were 29,000, that's 29,000 entries at Purdue University and their human animal bond library that Habri maintains. And suddenly the amount of research exploded. And then they found the key to it, which was the, you know, this point about oxytocin and cortisol in your brain. So there was, there was an underpinning that wasn't just, you know, you felt good. There was a reason why you felt good and so forth. And by the way, it was mutual. Pets felt better and had the same increase in oxytocin and decrease in cortisol. So what happened then was researchers got funded in the National Institute of Health with, with Mars and Mars, by the way, has the world's largest veterinary practices and the biggest pet food business. And Mars, which people think of as chocolate, Mars has more going in pet than anything. And they funded it at the NICH, a series of studies. And it's led to Habri being formed to have companies give Habri money to fund researchers. And everyone's an honest study. In other words, they're not told, here's the answer we want. They just go out and find out. But there's a, my favorite one right now, there's two. One is a study of, a, of, of an aquarium in, in nursing homes. So what's that have to do with the human-animal bond? Well, let me tell you something. You can have an interaction with a pet fish the way you do with a dog. And I could give you an example if we had time. But they studied and found that seniors 
that were withering away. They were simply not eating on any kind of a regular schedule and they were just shrinking and their systems were shutting down, right? They, you, know, you have to nourish yourself at whatever age you are. And studying and being near an aquarium and watching methodically how fish eat, guess what? They began to eat regularly. Now, how wow. practical is just a really practical example? Well, then the University of Tennessee is finishing a study, but preliminarily what we know is this. When adolescents are going into intensive acute cardiac surgery, so if you're a parent, you can just imagine some of you have gone through this. You've got a seven or eight-year-old child about to have heart surgery and, and just try to picture the stress that child is going through. If the child can spend an hour or so with a therapy dog or their own dog right before surgery, guess what? The amount of medication, pain meds, and anesthetic they need is lessened. And if, if the opioid crisis has taught us one thing, it's that anywhere you can reduce the amount of drugs someone needs to take in a hospital, particularly pain meds, which are a nice polite term for opioids, mm. the better you are. And Incredible. so, I mean, let me get this straight. The dog lowered the stress level in a manner that that eight-year-old could endure open heart surgery and have less help from, from drugs than otherwise. And Very powerful. Really, you know, just two, but there's a thousand examples like that. So yeah. that changed. So now it's understood. It's not folklore. And people don't go out and get a puppy because they've read about the human animal bomb. But it, it, we found this. If a veterinarian will talk to a pet owner about the human animal bond, they'll go to the vet more often. They'll spend more money on the vet. They want to learn more about it. You know, the, the millennial pet owner, they actually want to manage the care for their pet the way they do for themselves. Mm. And people think that's an odd idea, but, but just think about yourself. Most of the health-related decisions I make, I implement, right? My wife teaches at the Mayo Clinic. I'm not going to Mayo every day saying, what should I do today? Give me some advice to be healthy today. You know, you, you spend most of your year, I mean, like 99.999% governing and managing your own health care with guidance. That's what millennials want for their pets. They're going to pay for the expertise, but they want to do more of it. They want to be in, involved in it. They want to understand it. I don't think it's just millennials though, Mark. I think that mm -hmm. most pet parents who have that kind of bond with their pet want that kind of care for that pet. And sometimes financials get in the way and maybe, you know, the millennials studied uh, have the resources that taking care of a pet in that way requires. But I think that people's hearts are, are all in the same place when it comes to yeah. wanting to take care of their pets that way. And what I want to do is I want to pause here for one second because we need to take a break from our sponsor. But when we come back, Mark, you're going to reveal something about homeless dogs that I thought I knew and believed, but it shocked me. It literally turned it on its head, and I bet it's going to shock you too. So refresh that beverage, get cozy, and tune back in to find out what I'm talking about. For those fortunate to have experienced the deep bond and unconditional love of a companion animal, the death that follows can be one of the most difficult and misunderstood losses to go through. Many times, this devastating loss goes unrecognized and trivialized by family and friends, leaving grieving pet parents struggling to find healthy ways to cope with the loss. In And I Love You Still, a thoughtful guide and remembrance journal for healing the loss of a pet 
Dr. Julianne Corbin calls attention to the difficulties unique to the loss of a beloved pet and provides an interactive and compassionate guide to help you process your loss and work towards coming to a place of peace and healing. For those interested in journal therapy and looking for a professionally written and compassionate resource to help understand and reconcile the grief associated with the loss of your pet, this book is for you. And I Love You Still, a thoughtful guide and remembrance journal by Julianne Corbin is now available for purchase on Amazon and other major book retailers. Let's Talk Pets. Let's Talk Pets. On Pet Life Radio. Pet Life Radio. PetLifeRadio.com. Welcome back. If you've just joined, we're talking with Mark Cushing, author of Pet Nation, The Love Affair That Changed America. And we're just about to learn something that took me totally by surprise. Apparently, there's a shortage of dogs in America. What? Mark, how could this be? We're told, we're taught that the shelters are filled with hapless dogs and cats and desperate needs of homes. What happened? Well, it's it shocked me too. And it was about 2014 when I began to get an inkling that something was out of balance in the needs for dogs and, and the demand and the supply. And I had conversations off the record with senior officials of, of animal rights and animal welfare organizations. And I put the question to them, and I won't reveal their names, I always promised anonymity, but uh, they said, yeah, we're in a shortage, and in five years, we'll really have a shortage. And I got interested in this. And despite the fact that last night, if you couldn't sleep and you're on cable, you might have seen Sarah McLaughlin singing once oh, again. You know, for I can't watch years. that ASPCA commercial. I just can't. That dog in that shelter is now about 27 years old, so yes, much, she's still there. But the truth is, we have a shortage, but it wasn't... So what? A lawyer, commentator, you know, activist myself has that opinion. So I worked with a group and raised the money and funded a university study and then a national survey by a firm that does political surveys like presidential campaigns. So they, they know how to do top five surveys. And we determined, and, and the, the to, twin issues were, what, what's the total number of dogs we need each year, given the number that pass away and then the growth in the population? What's that number? It's about 8.3 million. And then we looked at where, you know, the, the groups we knew produced dogs, what number did they claim they produced? And then including, we wanted to find out how many dogs can shelters provide, because that was really the key. There was a campaign going on, what I call the, you know, adopt, don't shop, really mm-hmm. pushing the, the moral duty, like, like an ethical obligation to get a shelter dog. Yes. Which was a good thing to do, but I, I'm personally not of the view you have a moral duty to get a shelter dog versus a dog from your neighbor if they happen to have a litter that, yeah. that you're interested in. But in any event, yeah. so Mississippi State University, which the shelters communities work with, and it's a very progressive veterinary school. And we did the study and determined for the year 2015, we were able to get a perfect composite picture of how many dogs came into a shelter and what happened to those dogs. And it was about 5.7 million that came in. And ended up shelters produce about 25% of the dogs people need. And so when you look at the other sources, it ended up showing us that we had in the range of a 2.1 to 2.3 million dog shortage. Two things about that are important, Jody. One was, and then I independently talked to a lot of shelters, particularly in the North. And if you don't get to a shelter by noon on Saturday in New York, there's no dogs to adopt. 
North Shore and Long Island's phoning other shelters to say, do you have dogs that we could take? Because we have people that want dogs wow. and we don't have any. There will be people screaming right now at your radio, at, at their <laughs> computer, because they're living in a small southern town or Midwest town. I was just going to ask about, what about Georgia? What about Florida? What about Mississippi? There are pockets everywhere. But Mississippi shelters, I call it the canine freedom train. Mississippi shelters now ship their dogs to Minneapolis. East Tennessee shelters ship their dogs to Buffalo. Alabama shelters send their dogs to New Jersey. Georgia does that too to New York. Yeah, exactly. There's wonderful networks created. But the point is, yes, there are pockets of, of shelter overpopulation. But here's, here's the number that you can't ignore. We've had a 95% reduction in euthanasias, forced killing of dogs because shelters ran out of room over the last 15 years, 95%. The number went from 10 million down to less than a million to about 750,000. And those dogs are mainly dogs that can't be adopted due to behavioral issues or health issues. So there's a myth that every shelter in America is chock full. Well, I'm from Portland originally, and Oregon Humane Society, one of the most progressive, well-funded, you know, incredibly well-run, they get shipments of dogs every week from Bakersfield in LA and they send their dogs north. And it's a great system because they don't have outlets in Los Angeles to manage it. And Oregon Humane is full of people in Portland that want a second dog, a third dog, a first dog. Yeah, and so, it works. So it raised the question, which you know, I'm, I'm both paid and I'm, um, I'm also in the business of, of doing this, which I'm not afraid to provoke and start a conversation on a topic people find hard to believe of, well, what do we do about it? And we have two solutions. The solution that's in place right now is an odd one. About 1.1 million of this shortage is made up from foreign dogs, but they're not coming through customs with passports and veterinary records and health records with vaccinations. They're getting in the country illegally. This is from the Center for Disease Control, CDC, and the U.S. Department of Agriculture. And that about 3% of those 1.1 million have any health records whatsoever. Okay, it's good that those dogs, wherever they came from, Romania, Kazakhstan, Bulgaria, Guatemala, you know, Honduras, it's great that they have a happy American home now. I'm not saying we should do anything to those dogs, of course. But is that really a long-term sustainable policy for the U.S. if dogs are as important as they are? Well, it is the only policy if we can't solve this absolute, you know, two pit bulls fight between commercial breeding and animal rights organizations who call them puppy mills. Some are bad actors, not all are, but the term puppy mill has been developed or used as a term to cover anybody who breeds dogs for a living. That's not true. That's not true. I think it's more to cover, you know, backyard breeders of which there are some very bad actors and which there are some responsible, but the larger commercial breeders, while they may be tainted as breeders and not shelters by this overarching message, adopt, don't chop. You know, there are some wonderful breeders who treat their dog. Yeah. As you, as you well know, Jody, I'm not, no, I'm not agreeing with the use of the term. I'm just saying, I know the literature. I, I live in this world every day. The term is applied to virtually all commercial breeders. If you're a large scale breeder, you will get the label of puppy mill put over your head and you're sort of guilty until you prove you're innocent. And so they don't want to share and go into the sunlight and talk about what their practices are. And my solution has been, and people know me for this, this, you know, what they think is a pretty radical idea, but it's not. You know, if I had a large commercial breeding operation, let's say I had it in, in uh, upstate New York, 
I'd have cameras and video cameras 24-7 in every inch of my property so that every animal rights group could spend all night watching my cameras going, here's how the dogs are treated. Oh, that's a veterinarian. Oh, that's a trainer. Well, now they're being fed. Now they're being cleaned. In other words, you've got to take the mystery away, which is yes. why people think it's probably bad. So I'm not saying that large breeders are puppy mills, but it's not a profession people are going into. You know what I mean? It, it's so two states, 280 cities and counties have, have banned the sale of puppies in their, in their towns or state. And uh, it's now three states with California. So and they're doing it thinking they're going to kill all these large breeding operations that rely upon pet stores. And they're not doing that because the Internet's another way to go. But the point is, there's no reason with all the problems that the United States has negotiated and solved over its two centuries, we can get breeders and animal rights groups in the same room because they don't really differ much on what humane breeding practices are. The good ones, I totally agree with you. Yeah. And what about, you, I'm sure you're familiar with uh, canine care certified. Sure. Yeah. Okay. So tell people a little bit about what they do yeah. because that's a bridge. Yeah. Okay. And that was a group, the group that funded that uh, I was involved with. And Canine Care Certified is trying to get humane standards through a, a professor at Purdue, Candace Crony. Candace Crony, yeah. And, and, and others have the same viewpoint as to what the, the practices should be. And it's kind of like what the coffee companies did. You know, back in the day, Starbucks and Pete's right. Coffee, and, and they were getting hammered for unethical labor practices in Ethiopia and other coffee-growing regions, environmental bad practices. They got a trade group, and they went out and certified and so people could see if the coffee store where they bought their espresso in the morning was certified or not. And you can do the same with dogs. It's a simple solution. That's what's behind Canine Certified. It's had some success. It's not grown. It's not, yeah. doesn't have the scale yet. There's still kind of political battles behind the scenes I don't need to get into. But that's the pathway, Jody. You're right. And that's so I've given talks the last two months to some animal welfare and animal rights group symposia. And people just come flying at me with these questions. How dare you suggest that commercial breeding is a solution? And I said, well, you understand what it takes to create a puppy, right? You have to breed. So somebody has to breed the next generation of American puppies. And if it's some unregulated fellow in Guatemala and you think that's a good solution versus someone who lives by humane negotiated standards in Indiana. And is transparent. There you go. So I think it's going to get solved. I suspect I'll spend a fair amount of my next five, 10 years involved in it. But um, this whole topic, which we've enjoyed, you know, a good 15 minutes on, <laughs> it does surprise people because there's this myth that every shelter is just chock full of dogs and, and they're being put down, you know, every week because we can't find homes for them. Yeah, I think it's got more tentacles, which unfortunately we don't have time to go into, but Mark's book definitely goes into it. Kim Cavan's book, The Dog Merchants, goes into sure. where book. dogs come from and, and the money trail of the dog business. Yep. And Mark, you talk about land-grant universities, which is really interesting, which you can learn more about in Mark's book. But there's also educating people about certain types of dogs. And I was going to say breeds, but the dogs that are lumped under the pit bull umbrella are not all pit bull terriers. They just look a similar way with that square right. face. And, you know, there's a real education process that needs to happen there because in the shelters that do have, you know, an abundance of dogs, most of them are pit mixes. Well, you know, it's, it's interesting, Jody, you've seen this and, and a lot of your listeners are probably sitting next to a dog that fits this description. The most creative change 
in the dog scene in the last 20 years have been what people will call designer breeds. And usually there's a oodle at the name because it involves a poodle. And so it doesn't shed. But the Labradoodle and the various 10 or 15 versions of mixed breeds that are you know kind of designed behaviorally do very well. People love those dogs. And, and is a real simple test of the shortage of dogs right now. I know people that are on four-year waiting lists to get yeah. certain breeds. And these aren't exotic breeds, you know, that, that some scientist has to figure out how to make these dogs work. There's just not enough breeding activity. Mm-hmm. Um, and I always ask people, if you've been to a career fair of a high school or a college and the person in charge says, so what do you want to be when you grow up? Have you ever seen anybody raise their hand and say, I want to be a dog breeder? You would think in a culture of pet nation that I wrote the book about, you think there'd be 10 kids going, I want to breed dogs. Good God, you know, we will never have enough dogs. That's a great idea. If you mm-hmm. did that, people would look at you like, you want to you have a puppy mill? Now, everybody wouldn't think that, but somebody would say it. And, and that idea has become kind of the, the, the umbrella that a lot of people use. So there's a lot of work to be done there, Jody. You could spend a lot of, a lot of your yes. shows. Yes, one of those it. campaigns funded like the ASPCAs. Yeah, no, you got yeah. it. Good question. That would help. So let's bring it back around full circle. We all know Pet Nation is very real. Most of us listening, if not all of us, live it in our own lives. Where do we go from here? Great question. Love to love to give you uh, really three ideas. My number one idea is the biggest and boldest. If I could only do one thing, this is what I would do. And I'll probably, I know I'm involved in, in trying to make this happen, but it's not going to be something that happens overnight. Namely, that the federal government subsidizes, incentivizes, or funds in some manner a series of wellness activities, stopping smoking, uh, addressing obesity by good nutrition, promoting exercise, stopping drunk driving. Let's just take those four examples. And we put billions of dollars every year in different ways to promote activity for individuals in those arenas that have those problems. And everybody listening and me, and probably you, Jody, would say that's money very well spent. Good. That's one of the good things federal government does. Well, my point is all the evidence about the human animal bond, all the evidence for individuals, all the evidence for $11 billion a year of fewer medical expenses from a George Mason University study because people have a pet, all the evidence I mentioned about the social capital, the community building value. Pets are the cheapest medicine we have in this country. And they should be elevated to the same level as those other four behaviors. So we should promote, we should incentivize through tax and or insurance credits, acquisition of a dog or cat, and the veterinary medical care of the same. So they stay healthy. And that idea, it would be transformative. And 10 years ago, when I told a congressman that he took out his cell phone and showed me this cute little, I think it was a King Cavalier. King Charles Cavalier, and he was just beaming about what a cute dog. And I made this point to him 10 years ago that that's where we were heading because of the human animal bond. And he laughed like, yeah, right. Sure. I mean, the idea was silly. It's not silly today. And part of it is why I wrote my book and people's reaction to the book. I think we can build the case that there's just too much science behind pet engagement and pet ownership to not want to make sure everybody can enjoy it. So that's number one. Mm-hmm. And I, I kind of put that under, let's have a national pet policy and I'll help write it. The second thing is, is a big deal, particularly for low-income Americans. Uh, right now, people that make less than 30000 a year own dogs at the same rate as people that make over hundred grand a year. But we're dangerously getting to where dogs become a luxury item. 
Almost all public housing in America is required to be pet friendly and a majority isn't. Nobody cares. Nobody enforces it. If the person says to you, no, you can't have that dog. No, I'm sorry. You you want that dog here? You can't live here. So we need policies to remove barriers to people having pets, particularly in public housing to start with. And then I've worked with a group that's had a lot of success with private developers and, you know, across in Manhattan and in Jersey City and in Columbus, Ohio and Austin, Texas and Denver and so forth. All the new apartment buildings, let me assure you, they're pet friendly. And they're not doing it because the good of their heart. Millennials have told them, I can't have my dog. I'm not looking at your apartment building. I don't care how cool it is, you know, what the, what the kitchen looks like. So removing barriers to pet ownership, particularly for seniors, particularly for low-income seniors, so important in low-income Americans. That's number two. Number three is we've got three shortages we've got to solve. One, we've already talked about dogs. The second is veterinarians. And the third is vet techs or vet nurses. Access to veterinary care is a critical issue. And it's not enough to have a pet if you can't find and get in to see a veterinarian or a vet tech. We're not at the point prices make it impossible, but as the demand for vet services grows, which it's growing, and as the shortage is more and more acute, which is the case, you'll have a problem. And that that needs to be solved. So I think if we can address the breeding issue, assume that foreign dogs are the future of America, welcome them, but make sure they've got some kind of records so we have an idea whether we're getting a healthy dog or not. I think that'll keep us busy for a few years, myself included. They are wonderful, lofty goals, and I'm putting good energy out there for you. And if there's any way that we can help over here, you let us know. You haven't heard the last of me, Jody. (laughs) I hope not. (laughs) Where can people find you, Mark, and learn more about this, your book, et cetera? Okay, they can go to marklcushing.com. The L is Louie, but but Louie's not named for me. He's named for Louis Vuitton, sorry. He wanted a more stylish name, I guess. But marklcushing.com is my author page. You can go to the Animal Policy Group, one word, long word, but pretty simple, animalpolicygroup.com and find out all the things I do and the clients I represent and issues I get involved in. And uh, one of those two ways you'll find me and, and uh, really excited to be on the show. I know you've got a great audience and, and, and you have fun shows. So uh, my kids were impressed that I got to be on your show. Oh, thank you so much. Well, we're really, really happy to have you. And this has been extremely interesting and really important. And I think that those listening will agree with me that pets are such an important part of our lives. They are so intrinsically woven into everything that we do. And we only want the best for them. And we want everybody to be able to enjoy them. So there you go. There you go. So thank you so much, Mark. Very good. Thanks, Jody. We'll talk to you soon, I hope. Thank you all for listening. Thanks to our producer, Mark Winter. Mark, you make us sound so good. Thank you for that. My passion is living stylishly in animal rescues. So tune in next time to discover the designers, home decor, styles and rescue stories I love and more. And don't forget to visit me at BarkinSwagger.com where you'll find great fashion, shelter stories and more. So until next time, when fierce fashion calls, Bark and Swagger. Let's Talk Pets every week on demand only on PetLifeRadio.com.